Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. titles in six years. Yes, it is worth cheering for. Welcome to another episode of Musings on Madison here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave Melton, back here after a little hiatus because there were some much more important things going on here in the United States than uh, any of us three idiots would have accomplished by talking about nonsense last week. So we took that break. We've regrouped, reorganized ourselves, and hopefully we are back doing whatever it was we were doing for the other 19 episodes of the show because this is the 20th episode of Musings on Madison. I can't believe we got this far, and I'm sure the other two gentlemen with me are just as shocked. And first up, it is the analytics starling of Second City Hockey, Shepard Price. Hi, I don't have a quip this week. Oh, well, then yeah. what are you doing here? You had two weeks I don't know. to think of one. I know. I just, I don't, nothing came to me. Yeah. All right. Well, you're fired. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 I completely understand. Oh, um, maybe the other guy's got something because he is our resident pun master. It is Brandon Kane. I don't have a pun, but the Blackhawks did win the. 2010 Stanley Cup on the nicest date of the year, June 9th. That, that, is, that is correct. Can't confirm. Well, we're off to a roaring start. So anyway, we're coming to you on a – it's very windy here. I don't know about you guys. I, like it's been we're, – we're talking about weather. That's where we're going to start. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, we're going to – I'm out of this part. Let's not, talk, let's not talk about the weather. That's, that's some – Cumulus clouds. Yeah. Oh, you. I, it's dark. I can't. I. I see no clouds. It's too dark. But anyway, um, we're we're getting close closer to hockey again. Players are reporting to Fifth Third Bank Practice Arena. There was videos, or uh, pictures and videos of Patrick Kane was there, and Michael uh, Michael Nylander, Alex Nylander was there. Or what? What's his seven name, Brandon? Can you roll that off the top of your head? No idea. I always copy and paste it from Wikipedia. Oh, it's Alexander <laughs> Maximilian Michael Jr. Nylander Altelius? Yeah, we'll go with it. Yeah, there you go. And also Alex DeBrinken and Malcolm Subban. We're all spotted at the Blackhawks practice facilities today, so maybe we're getting closer to hockey, and maybe we're going to get to actually see this team play again. Um, we're still weeks and probably a month or two away from that, so we're not going to dive into that part of hockey for this podcast, but what we are going to do, we're going to turn the clock back about a decade because as Brandon mentioned earlier, 10 years ago, 
this week, also known as 10 years ago yesterday, the Blackhawks won their first Stanley Cup, beating the Flyers, was it 4-3 to three to score that game? Fourth Stanley yes. Cup. They four won the Stanley three. Cup. 4-3, to yes. three, beat the Flyers in Philly. Michael Layton gave up a soft goal. It was funny. Um, <laughs> we, we had a bunch of articles on the website on Tuesday, and part of what we did at the website was we had a period-by-period breakdown of the game uh, where each one of us took a period, watched it, and wrote about it. I actually sat and watched the whole game because God knows I don't have anything better to do during what's slowly not becoming quarantine but still kind of is. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot about the 2010 team tonight because it's the 10-year anniversary, and that was such a fun time to experience. Now, it's Brandon and I were both heavily – into hockey at this point. Shepard, I know you said you were not quite around there yet. You said your dad hadn't forgiven the Wirtz family yet? Yeah. Uh, again, dollar bill for any, any, any relatively new Blackhawks fans like myself who, who don't already know this. Although, if you're a Blackhawks fan, you know this. Dollar bill, easily the worst sports owner in Chicago history. Yeah. Well, his team was at one point rated by ESPN as the worst franchise in professional sports. Yeah. And, and a I mean, distinction that would not a distinction that would not be won by another hockey team until Toronto in like 2017, and then again, also look at them turning around. Yeah, and whether or not you feel like this was justified or right or whatever, when they had of the pregame ceremony for like a pregame memorial for Bill Wirtz at the United Center after his death, he got booed or they booed the ceremony. So that probably tells you a lot of what you need to know about how some Blackhawks fans, including Shepard's father, felt about Bill Words. But anyway, all of that's in the past now because the Blackhawks won the Cup. And gentlemen, as we start to dive into this flashback 10 years ago, I guess what kind of things struck you as you were re-watching that game? What things kind of stood out to you about that team? And uh, what made them good enough to win the Cup that year? The facial hair, especially on the face of the cap, uh, on the face of the captain, uh, easily easily stand out as oh, the, the best. Taves was really bad that year. Like, he got a little better as he got to like 2013, 2015, but he just like just the just the thin chin strap line. And that was it. The Amish beard, I loved it watching watching that. So that that was the key. Poor that face was the key. On the captain. Yes, it yes it was, and also Marion Hose's hair. <laughs> well, okay. But, but for, like, from an on-ice perspective, Shepard, as somebody who wasn't as familiar with that team, uh, what kind of things stood out to you when you were watching that game? And I don't know if you've gone back to watch any of the other games from that time. Um, I got to say, like, again, watching fast, like, quick response, Brent Seabrook, it's clear, uh, like, like I said in the, in the uh, piece, it's, easily, it's easy to see why he was given that contract. He should, just, he should have just been given that contract a lot earlier because that guy was, like, when he actually had – a a rapid response time and was actually able to be on his feet and like fast. Brent Seabrook was again, like the second best defenseman on the Blackhawks who uh, on a Blackhawks team who won three cups. Like that's not nothing. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think it, it really, that's one of the biggest disappointments of all the things going on with Seabrook now is people are forgetting how good of a defenseman he was. Yeah. That, that really stood out. Like the fact that he was he, like, there was times and he would just like bat a puck away. I'm like, that's something I don't see much from Seabrook anymore. Like, he made he made the same mistakes he's making now where he goes down too early. But, man, he was better a lot of the time. He was he was significantly more mobile, and, and that made so many other aspects of his game so much better. He always had the – he still has the booming shot from the point. Every now and then he still breaks out that Seabrook stretch pass 
that like 75 to 100 foot pass from out of his zone that starts an odd man rush the other way. But the other thing is just the, all the clutch goals he scored. Like sometimes I think that gets forgotten, but I mean, he scored against Detroit. He's got multiple overtime goals. He scored the game winner when they were down five, nothing to Calgary and came back and won in overtime. Like if the Blackhawks have needed a clutch goal, Brent Seabrook has probably scored. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he was, he was basically our Alec Martinez to borrow from our greatest rival. How dare you? How dare you bring up that name on this podcast? Hey, he is now a Vegas Golden Knight where I also write. So like, I'm somewhat of a fan. Okay. Yes, I'm somewhat of a fan of him now. Well, he like, and can be. Yeah, well, he luckily put a shot off Nick Letty's ass one time, I guess. So, yeah, whatever. Uh, Brandon, what about you? What observations or things did you notice about the those uh, teams of Black Days? Your I don't know what I'm trying to say. Teams from the past. I didn't know Nick Letty's ass was that big. But. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Apologies to Nick Letty's ass. The team was so fucking fast. <laughs> Jesus. Yes. So that funny. was like the first. So I watched the games, the first five games of the series before we started this project on Tuesday or whatever. Um, and there were games where one team was just connecting on passes and it was very like fluid for one side, but it was rarely that way. And with the pace that game six brought, Mm-hmm. And that's obviously like an elimination game, but it was just like a totally complete ga- different game at the jump. Um, the first like three, four minutes, the Blackhawks dominated, but then it kind of evened out and the Flyers had just in that game six, like so much opportunities, but they just like shot themselves in the foot so much with like passes that were like just off and like they couldn't do anything. And that just like showed throughout that game, particularly where it was like the Blackhawks would screw up somehow. And then like the Flyers just like couldn't capitalize on anything, um, which was kind of a story in like the games that the Blackhawks won in that series throughout. Um, and Brent Sopel's play just so maddening. <laughs> like every, every time he does something good, you're like, yes. And then, he takes a dumb penalty and you're like, Oh, that's so cool. All right. Like, it's just like, and the penalties weren't like egregious really. It was just kind of like, ah, all right, whatever. It, it, you're talking about penalties and the one I watched the second period in depth for that piece that we did. And the, the biggest thing that struck me is just how even in the Stanley cup final, in game six, when your team is nearing is on the brink of elimination, the amount of stupid penalties that a team is willing or the team will take baffles me. In the second period, Philly scored one up two to one because Duncan Keith tripped over or may have been tripped by Scott Hartnell. Anyway, there's a trip, there's a goal. Philly goes up two one, crowd's going nuts, they're losing their minds, and then off the draw. Ladd and Claude Giroux kind of get tangled up. They're hack and slash and no big deal. But then Brayden Colbert walks, skates over, and crosses <laughs> in the face. Face. Square in the jaw. And, like, both the refs see it. Pierre Maguire sees it. Everybody in the building sees it. It's just – it's baffling that you could have that lack of restraint in such an important moment. And the Hawks didn't score on the power play, but during the four-on-four that happened – 
after they called a terrible goaltending interference penalty on Marion Hossa, uh, the Hawks tied it up, and then they scored at the end of the period, took the lead. Although the Flyers did tie it up, we all know what happened in overtime. It's just – it's unfathomable, unfathomable – that's easy for me to say – it's impossible for me to understand how you could take that penalty in that situation. Like some trigger in your head has to go off. Hey, don't do this stupid thing. And that's the Braden Coburn that lost to the Hawks in 2010 and in 2015. So he must really hate you. <laughs> well, there's an instance in the first period too, where the Blackhawks killed off a penalty. And then like seven, eight seconds later, Sopel committed his second interference penalty. Yeah. And then that's when Philly scored like in that final minute of the period. So it's like, they just – Philly was like, well, you guys did it, so I guess we'll just get you back and do that. Yeah. And then Ladd was out for the rest of the game, right? No, I think he was – no, because Ladd was, Ladd was on the ice when they scored the game winner. Or maybe it was the rest of that period is what I was thinking. Perhaps. I, that I, I yeah. don't know. Or but speaking of guys who missed time, Dave, what you had mentioned in the pre-show. We're going to get to that in a second. But okay. the one thing that Shepard pointed out to me and then I had confirmed as I was watching the second period – Marion Hosa had a very bad game, which is a weird thing to say because yeah. it's weird to say anything bad about Marion Hosa. Maybe this was a case of him because I think people forget that at the time of this cup, he had the kind of curse on him of not being able to win the cup, having he lost with Pittsburgh in 2008. He lost to Detroit while playing with Pittsburgh. Then he went to Detroit and lost to Pittsburgh in 2009. So then he came to the Hawks and everyone – and they were still concerned that he was never going to get over the hump. So maybe it was a matter of him trying too hard or being a little nervous or whatever. But uh, he, he, I forget what he – what you mentioned he did in the first period or just looks – did he just look off or something? No, in the first period he looked like himself early oh. on. Okay. But then, like, just progressively he, like, kind of – it almost seemed like he was playing it safe. Yeah. Like he didn't want to take any risks. So it's like, well, it was him. Yeah. Like situation. 30 seconds and 30 seconds into the second period, he either was trying to dump it in or trying to pass the puck to somebody completely fanned on it. And Simone Gagne had a hundred foot breakaway the other way from the center ice in that Niemi stopped and kept the game tied at one at that moment. And I think there was the, the interference call, I, I, it was funny to hear Pierre Maguire scream, what? As he announced <laughs> the penalty on Marion Hossa. And then it was funny when they showed the replay, Maguire's trashing the refs, Edzo's trashing the refs. Even Doc Emmerich, who never says a bad word about anything, was kind of like, yeah, that doesn't seem like the best call I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, and Hossa was so angry about that call, yeah, too. Yeah, and he's – of all people on the ice, he's usually the most – the last one to get in an official's face. I feel like he was usually more reserved than others. Taves would have been the first. He's usually usually well acquainted with the officials, not just because the, he's the captain, but he has an opinion on every call that goes against the Blackhawks. Um, I, I want to go back to what Brandon said about them being fast. And I, you kind of touched on it there, but I, just, I feel like just reiterating – the difference, it's, and it's so much more noticeable compared to where the Hawks are now to where they were a decade ago. Obviously, comparing a championship team to a team that was, you know, not far from the lottery, or I guess would have been in the lottery if all this stuff hadn't happened. But not only, like, they had so many guys who could skate on this team, but everything happened so fast with this team. Like, the 
the players would skate fast, they would pass fast, they would make the decision to move the puck fast. Like nothing was ever stationary with this team. And I feel like that is something that is so lacking now. Like if you put a, the 2010 Hawks and the 2020 Hawks side by side, that would be the most notable thing is how much more fluid everything was in 2010 as compared to this to now. It seems like there's a lot more thinking happening with this team than there was a decade prior. Yeah. And also, again, like watching them, well, natural stat, natural stat, uh, natural stat trick goes back um, to 2010, thankfully. They were very dominant in this game. Like in terms of possession, they just dominated the puck throughout it. And that, again, that's because of their speed. Oh, the whole, like the whole second period after, well, after Philly took the lead and then took the stupid penalty and gave up the game tying goal, the rest of that period, you can just like hear the crowds collective. Oh shit. Just building louder and louder and louder as Hawks are continually controlling the puck and getting more shots and getting more chances. You can, and just, it's, I feel like it's hockey's the only sport where it happens on this magnitude because just, just the way the crowd is in playoff hockey where you can feel their anxiety through your television. And as I'm watching this game, like I could feel all the anxiety building among the Flyers crowd. And then the Hawks score the goal that gives them the lead. And then the anxiety turns to anger and rage because now you're losing and now you might be losing the Stanley. Yeah. But then and again, this is a team with Chris Pronger that they're, that they're getting dominated. Right, like yeah. The third or fourth best defenseman of all time. Like, I wrote this song. Oh. <laughs> are, are you disagreeing with that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair. Well, he, a, he, drives so a, many, he drives so many teams in the Stanley Cup final, though. Like, he, kicking he, and screaming. He was pretty damn good. Like, I, I, I can't. Oh, there was emotion with that sound effect. <laughs> I, I won. I was, was it a, yeah, never mind. I don't need to paint a picture of that. But, I mean, Pronger was very good. And there were... There's a lot of talent on the team. Like I was going down the Philly roster, I forgot about Daniel Briere. I because yeah. it was near the end of his career. I forgot he was the leading scorer. It was also Vili Leno's big moment. I don't know how many more uh, times he was such a relevant hockey player as he was in that season. I remember him on the Red Wings, but that was by far the best. Well, actually, the next season in Philly was the best season of his career when he had 53 points. But uh, he was the second leading scorer on Philly's team that postseason with 21 points in 19 games. And uh, he only appeared in three playoffs, but that was by far his best performance. Um, but you, if you go down Philly's roster, the skaters, it's a lot of good players. But then you look at their two goaltenders, and this is like thinking back 10 years later, I, I don't know if I really thought about this as much then as I do now. The two guys that carried them in net to the playoff or to the Stanley Cup final were a Blackhawks sixth round pick from 1999 that washed out when the team was at the absolute worst Blackhawks team that's existed in franchise history. And then the second worst team in Blackhawks history had the other Philly goalie on it for a while. And these two guys were on these two just putrid Blackhawks teams and couldn't narrow down a job. And now they're on the flyers carrying them to the Stanley cup. And I guess it kind of makes sense that in the first game, the Hawks lit up Leighton for five goals or six goals. It was six goals. And then they scored, I think, seven in game five. So I just thought to that be fair. Go ahead. To be fair, the Blackhawks didn't have a great goaltender either. Anti Niemi is no Corey Crawford. Oh, absolutely not. But uh, Mike, Michael Leighton nor Brian Boucher were even anti Niemi. So 
I thought Niemi was fine in the playoffs. Niemi was really good in the conference final against San Jose. Oh, for sure. He was yeah. awesome that round. But, I mean, in game game one where Leighton got lit up, the only reason Philly stayed in that game is because Niemi gave up a few soft goals. He didn't have a great Stanley Cup final, but the Hawks team in front right. of him was so good it didn't matter. He just had to right. be adequate. And he was more adequate than Cristobal Huey was at times that season. So he got the nod. Uh-huh. But it's it was telling that in the offseason when you have the goalie that just won you a Stanley Cup and they get an offer sheet for Nicholas Yalmerson and they decide to sign Yalmerson and let Niemi walk. I think that told you a lot about what the Blackhawks thought about Niemi as well as what they thought about Corey Crawford, who was the heir apparent in the system and finally get going to get his chance. Also what they thought about Nicholas Yalmerson. That too. Yeah. And, and I remember that was, there was a bit of time where there was the, that was the debate was if they sign this, if they match this offer sheet, I believe it was from San Jose. The, the pretty much came down to you're either keeping Yalmerson or you're keeping Niemi. And there was obviously the discussion amongst fan base, uh, Blackhawks fans about which player they should take. And I'm sure there were plenty of people in the Niemi camp. I could understand that, but I, I'm glad they went the route they did because I would have much rather, much nicer to have Nicholas Yalmerson for the last for the eight years after that as opposed to having Niemi who washed out of the league not long after that. Well, no, I shouldn't say washed out of the league, but he didn't have the career that Yalmerson did for the rest of his time in Chicago and even in Arizona. Yeah, the what if if they kept Niemi is a, is a lot sadder version of history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't think it is. I think it's more of like they don't win three cups. Well, yeah, but they just would have had to like find an actual defenseman because Crawford would have pushed Niemi out. That's true. Yeah, well, they might not have signed Marty Turco. Your goaltending duo that next season could have been Niemi <laughs> and Corey Crawford. Right. And they or they may not have brought they brought back Hobby Bullen at some point too, and maybe they didn't do that as well. But that's. I'm glad that's a revisionist history we don't have to worry about because they made the right decision in that situation. Um, But one other thing that Brandon touched on earlier, and I want to dive back into that really quick. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to rewatch this, but the stories come out and it came out in a few books and I've seen in a few articles referenced that Jonathan Taze may not have been able to play if there was a game seven because he got injured late in the third period of that game. And I remember I went back and watched the you watched his last it's it's near the end of the third period when he has the injury and then if you watch his first shift in overtime he does not look right like he can barely skate and it just it's it's obvious he was laboring uh did you, were you guys aware of this beforehand because i i don't th- i don't know if it's something i knew about until maybe two to three years ago were you guys aware of this no, because he, he looked fine when he was getting the awards. He won the Conn Smythe. He skates over. He looks perfectly fine. Yeah, well, I, I, that's just a gentle glide that uh, that I think even I could do on skates to stride over to pick up my Conn Smythe trophy that I will never win. But, yeah, there, like there was a gathering in front of the net. He got pushed. Somebody got pushed on him or he got pushed over awkwardly. And then he, he tries to – just the, the way he skates in his first shift, I think he got one shift. I think he gets another shift later on in overtime and doesn't – like nothing really happens. You don't really notice. And then Kane scores and everything's irrelevant. But if that, if that overtime had gone more than four minutes, we also might have – some other people might have noticed this and it may not have come out about, you know, five, ten years later whenever it did.
but I'm just like I'm I'm rewatching it right now, and you're watching Taves try and skate into the zone, and there's there's an acceleration, there's a gear there that's missing that he usually had at that point because he was what, 22, 23 at the time. Yeah, twenty two, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Brandon, did you know anything about this? Like, I I was I was completely unaware of this until about two or three years ago. So I remember rewatching all of the games that I could find on YouTube during the 2013 lockout. Okay. And I remember watching that back and being like, that's strange. But then like focusing on overtime, like you just don't even realize it because you're just following the puck and seeing where he is. And he wasn't near it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in the moment, I don't think anybody would have realized it. Um, Cause there's, there's only like, there was a very brief moment in his first shift about like 15 seconds in overtime where puck gets dumped in and he's skating up the left wall. And you can tell now that you're focusing on him, that something's not right, but the play's nowhere near him. And unless you were specifically watching Taze, you never would have seen this. And then um, I've I've got this going on another screen. So I'm going to keep an eye out for it to see if any other, but I feel like they very much limited his shifts because they were talking about it in the intermission about, whether or not he could go because like the injury happened late in the third. So they Quinville and the assistant coaches were aware of it. It was just a matter of they had to see if he could go because he's the captain. I, and I, the interesting part for me would be whether or not he would have played in game seven because Taves is a crazy person. Well, okay. I shouldn't, let me preface, walk that back a little bit. He would like, this was when he was like at the height of his captain seriousness. It would have taken a lot to get him to not play in game seven. I'm sure he would have at a very minimum, he would have suited up because like, wh- what do you, who are you going to replace Jonathan Taves with in the lineup? Right. Cause your second line center that year was Patrick Sharp, who yeah. uh, was much better as a winger than a center. Well, and he, re- he reluctantly played the second line center because nobody else would do it. And then uh, the other centers were Boland and John Madden. So I- I guess you put Boland on the first line, I guess. The hope for Dave Boland was that he was going to become the number two center in Chicago, although back injuries and injuries prevented that from ever happening. But, I mean, if if you take Taves out, you probably have to dress Colin Frazier as your fourth center. You bump everybody else up. It it gets ugly. I don't know what kind of a lineup you even put together with that team. You're not going to put Burrish on the ice? How dare you? (laughs) Burrish is a winger. He can play. He can play the wing. What about Bickle? <laughs> That'd be entertaining as hell. Yeah, I mean, if you want to just have Burrish and Eager just talk shit to Pronger the whole game, I'm sure. That, <laughs> just like they did with the Sedins for an entire series. I, I, like, it, it was almost worth it to dress Burrish and Eager, even if they wouldn't actually contribute anything on the ice. They did. There was a decent fourth line that entire postseason with Madden and Eager and Burrish on his wings. I think Brower sometimes got some action on that fourth line as well. But just the way that they were able to get – they clearly were a nuisance not only hockey-wise, but they, they got into the opponent's heads of everyone in Vancouver. So I guess there was something to be said for that. But the other thing related to 2010 that we wanted to touch on, and uh, I guess as we were discussing earlier, Shepard wasn't quite into hockey yet. Brandon, you didn't go to the parade? Correct. I did not. I sat on my ass at home and watched it and just was in awe of the sheer amount of humanity that I saw all over the streets downtown. 
do you remember how many people they estimated were there? I was absolutely, I forgot about this and I believe it because I, I was among these people and I, re, I remember never seeing that many people in my life. But do you remember the number that they put it at? I want to say it was three, right? Three what? Million? It was two, uh, two million in uh, the Chicago okay. Tribune story estimated. I, I remember thinking like hundreds of thousands of people, and then they said the estimates were at two million. And I like watching some videos of the parade and other stuff, and it's like, you know what? I, I, I think they're right. Just because you could not go anywhere in the loop that day. There, there were people like 20, 15, 20, 25 rows deep on every street, on every corner. It was, it was already like 100 degrees that day, humid as all hell, typical Chicago summer day. And then the mass of humanity that had assembled in that area made it about 10 to 15 degrees hotter. I think I was smart enough. I didn't actually wear a Hawk sweater that day. Otherwise, I would have died of heat stroke. Uh, I think I had a white championship T-shirt that I was wearing. But that, I, I don't know. I think I sweat off about 20 pounds that day. And I think when I got home, I drank a gallon of water without breathing just because I was so dehydrated at that point. If I was, I was 23 at the time, if I was about five years younger, I would have been in significantly more trouble. But like you said, Brandon, like the phrase massive humanity, I feel like is an understatement, but that's the best one I've got. They're just, there were so many people. I, I don't have the words to adequately describe to you how many people were at this damn thing. It's just, it, and they were everywhere. And the other, the other big thing for me is, realizing everybody was wearing Blackhawks gear. Now you're going to say, obviously, yeah, they're wearing a lot of Blackhawks gear because they're at a parade. If you went to a store, your local Dick Sporting Goods or Sports Authority or Sport Mart or all those other stores that don't exist anymore, but if you went to a store looking for like a Blackhawks hat or a Blackhawks shirt, you couldn't get it because they didn't sell it. You couldn't find this stuff anywhere except at a Hawks game or at Hawk quarters in downtown Chicago. Those are like the only two places you could buy Blackhawks gear because this was pre being able to buy things off the internet. And it was just, I'd never seen that many people and they were all wearing gear that just five years before that I couldn't even find in a store. And seeing that many people wearing that much Blackhawks gear, I, again, I don't have the good words to describe it. It just, it struck me and it is my enduring memory of that day. And then also uh, a really, really bad rap from Christopher Stieg. I thought it was wonderful. We just, I remember that's one other like little thing I remember is we're like, is somebody rapping on stage? Like who the hell? We couldn't see the stage. There was like, I I think I was about two blocks South of where the stage was set up. All I could see, I'm not tall for anybody who doesn't know me. Um, But all I could see was a row of police horses was like, and then I think the stage was actually like another block beyond that. So I, I I don't remember much of from the route other than that. And I remember uh, Pat Foley walked on stage wearing a Keith Magnuson jersey because I think Keith Magnuson had passed away within a year or two before that had happened, if I remember correctly. I think it was that December. I mean, I do have Google. I could probably look the stuff up, but but yeah, I, I my memories of most other things. It's just it's fuzzy just because. Oh no, I was way off. That happened in two thousand three. <laughs> But okay. it did happen in December. Okay, yeah, there you go. You know what? It happened because 
that was uh, Brian Berard was on the team at the time, and he was wearing number three. And when Keith Magnuson died, he switched to number four. So there's that. Because they retired three in November of 2008. Yeah, and I think Berard actually changed the number without being asked because I remember Pat Foley talking about that on a broadcast, speaking very highly of Brian Berard. But yeah. He was the last Blackhawk to uh, win the the one award. The uh... Masterton? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brian Bard's an interesting story. Which maybe we'll, we'll I, I got a trivia question. If you guys know the link between him and Marion Hosa, and we're gonna find out if you guys know the answer to that on the other side of this brief timeout. Today's episode is brought to you by cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Welcome back to Musings on Madison, and as promised before the break, they've had a minute to think during the commercial. Uh, Brandon Shepard, do any of you guys know the connection between Brian Burrard and Marion Hosa? They played together on the Ottawa Senators. I don't think they. I don't think they were ever teammates. Hmm. Brandon, what about you? Do you know? I want to say that they, the Senators thing, but also. I don't know if Hosa won the Calder, but I know that Perard did. Well, it's 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 more of an incident that happened with both of them in, involved. Uh, are you guys aware of the Brian Berard story? No. Well, well, he got he got the Masterton Trophy because he got uh, he got a stick in the eye. Like a guy followed through with a slap shot and missed the puck and hit Berard in the eye and basically knocked his eye out. And Brard missed a whole year of hockey. Thought he was going to retire because he couldn't see. He couldn't meet the minimum eye require the vision requirements in the one eye to be able to play in the NHL. It was something like twenty five hundred or something like that. And instead of like twenty twenty being perfect, he couldn't even get twenty five hundred. But I th- I don't remember exactly if it was like surgery or contact or whatever. But they got to a point where he could see just enough out of that one the other eye and his good eye where he was allowed to play again. And he ended up playing with the Hawks for, I think, a year, about a season and a half. And that was the year he won the Masterton Trophy because he came back from this horrific eye injury. And the player that hit him in the eye was Mary. Was Hosa. Yeah. Damn. And that, that happened in 2002? It happened so long ago that I, I forgot that when the Hawks signed Marion Hosa, it took me like two months, like, oh shit, that was the guy. Because when Brian Burrard came to the Hawks, there's nothing I love more in hockey than a good offensive defenseman. And Brian Burrard was that. So I adored him when he was on the Hawks, even though that team was god awful. He was on the team when the Hawks had. It was like the one bright spot. Yeah. That was the year the Hawks had six goalies play. And that was the year that Matt Underhill played his one career NHL game, which was the subject of a former Blackhawk of the week from like two years ago. He's down in Australia now. (laughs) Yeah. That was the comparison for two seasons ago when the Hawks used like what, seven goalies. 
where they're using Jeff Glass and uh, Brube and Scott Foster played a game. So Colin Delia, kind Colin of. Delia plays yeah. yeah, it was so. Yeah, and it just that so that incident happened in 2002 with Berard and Hosa, and I, that just that was what baffled me is that Hosa had played that long. He had played when the Blackhawks were absolutely irrelevant, and then he signed a 10-year contract when they were at the height of their powers. God, Mary, I'm so glad we got so much Marion Hosa content into this podcast because I miss talking about Marion Hosa because he was just such a delight, such a joy to watch. And guess what? On Monday, it is the five-year anniversary of the 2015 Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup victory. So we're going to get even more Marion Hosa content onto the website and onto this podcast. So keep an eye out for uh, secondcityhockey.com next week because we're going to write some similar articles about the five-year anniversary for that team. The parade was a little different, though, because the 2015 parade, they just crammed 60,000 people or so into Soldier Field. Much much smaller gathering than uh, some of the other ones. Although I still think they paraded through the streets of Chicago. I don't remember because somehow I had a buddy that miraculously landed tickets and we got into the rally inside Soldier Field, which was... Mm -hmm. I, did Versteeg rap at that one? Yeah, he did. He they did. Okay. they did not go through the streets of Chicago. They flew through. Like That's those right. buses were hauling ass. Yeah, yeah, they were hauling ass. Like they had somewhere to be. I'm like, it's a parade. These they're these guys are in the off season. Why are you guys going fifty down Congress? I mean, who among us like hasn't gone fifty down Congress? I. I've, well, I've gone way more than 50 when Congress turns into 290. I don't know about on Congress, though. It's a little tricky. But that part where it merges from 290 into, like, city traffic. Traffic, yeah. That is, that is one of the most dangerous stretches of road, I think, in all of Chicago because it's you can very quickly realize that you're going way too fast and there's a stoplight up ahead. So for those It comes out familiar, of nowhere all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the, the 2010 topic. I don't know if you guys have any other final thoughts about the parade, the team, the comparisons to the other championship team, championship teams the Blackhawks have had. Uh, just any other thoughts about this whole nostalgia trip we've been on while we're waiting for uh, present-day hockey to return to us? I mean, this team was great, but again, 2013 owns them. In a, in a seven-game series, I wonder if 2010 goes five games. Yeah, well – the goaltending. I think 2013 scores like four goals a game on anti Diemi, and like they get, they're lucky if they get two. On yeah, but I mean, all right, like the goaltending, four goals a game might be slight stretch because the 2010 team still had a pretty good defense. It's it's like it's Keith and Seabrook on both teams, and then it's Yalmerson with Campbell or Yalmerson with Oduya. I think that second pairing is the better of them. With Oduya, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's fair. I I think it was. The 2010 second pairing, like they were obviously have more of an offensive side because Campbell was more of an offensive defenseman. That second in 2013, that was your top shutdown defensive pairing with those two, as they were again in 2015. So, I, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I think the 2013 team wins in a seven game series because so many other players had developed, and, and Brian Bickle basically turned into what Dustin Bufflin was in 2010. Yeah. And, and they have a major advantage in net, as you said. 
trying to think. And then like the fourth line in 2010 was Madden and Frazier or not Frazier eager or burrish, or I think Brower sometimes like we were discussing earlier, 2013, it was Kruger, Froelich and Bolin. So, yep. And then also Andrew Shaw is somewhere in the, that lineup and Brandon Saad is somewhere in that lineup. And I, again, Brandon Saad easily owns Tom, Tom, Thomas Kopecky, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably true. Kopecky was just around to be Marion Hose's buddy. That was like, well, you're I totally gonna say, thought you were going to say Marion Hose's bitch. <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, it was, he was obviously like they signed Marion Hose and like, all right, Marion, we'll bring your buddy Tomas around. Go ahead. I mean, he did score a pretty cool goal in, I think it was game one of the cup final in 2010. He like came out of the box at the perfect time and at the end of a penalty and either got a breakaway or a two on one and scored on it. So, but yeah. I think, I think my final thoughts is thank God we have these like memories and old games to look at. Like I know there's fatigue in that setting for me of like watching classic games and you're like, I just want to watch, you know, some real time games now. But think about like other fans. Yeah, what are the Buffalo like, Sabres fans doing? What the fuck are they right doing? <laughs> How many? I mean, like the Sabres have been in two playoff series in the entire last decade. They've been in the playoffs four times in the last nineteen seasons. They didn't even make the half-assed playoff thing that's coming out now. Yeah. So grateful that we got to watch good hockey and that the players on those teams are still like relevant and fairly active on social too. Like that's yeah. fun. And that's specifically mentioning Dave Bolin, of course. Yeah. Dave Bolin yeah. talking shit to people from Vancouver on social media has been quite entertaining. Yeah. Uh, just like give him the key to the city or he's yeah. just going to steal it from you. Yeah. <laughs> so if you guys had to pick, would you rather be a team like the Buffalo Sabres that really hasn't a much of anything in the last 15 years? Or would you rather be the Toronto Maple Leafs who at every time they've made the playoffs have managed to lose it? They don't just lose. Like they take the soul out of their entire fan base's body every time they get eliminated from the playoffs. I think it it depends on the like level of, I guess, intrigue in the fan base because like Toronto takes it to a new level. But if that's just like a, average like fan base and like interest level then it doesn't because you're not just like all of the media coverage like just hammers it home like they always choke in the first round blah 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 that, okay yeah um but if it's just like you know casual it's like well they lost but they got there <laughs> i don't but just i i don't know if i get the the way like obviously it, it's hard well okay it's it's hard to talk about it from a hockey sense comparing the experience of like Blackhawks fandom and Maple Leafs fandom because of how different their fortunes have been over the last 20 years. But if you just make a cross sports comparison, you can draw a lot of comparisons between the what it's like to be a Maple Leafs fan and what it's like to be a Chicago Bears fan because of the way maybe the Maple Leafs go for a higher scale of heartbreak, but the Bears do a pretty good job of getting your hopes up and then letting you down severely the way that Toronto does. So I guess I can identify with that a little bit. You're saying the Canadians are the Packers? <sighs> well, the Boston Bruins are the Packers. Then who are the, who are the Canadians? They're not the Vikings. 
No, not us. Of uh, us being the Lions. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. That that's hard to do. Well, I mean, because the Canadians are a team with a great historical success. They have the same re- number of wins as uh, title wins as the Yankees, I think. But they have uh, like a team that would have had historical success and really, really good back in the day, but hasn't really done much of anything in the present era. That would be the Chicago Bears. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's a good. Uh, Maybe, maybe that'll be next week's podcast. Which NFL which NFL team corresponds to which NHL team? I, I, Who's I don't Seattle? Know. Who's Seattle? Who's like brand new? Jacksonville? I don't know. You know what? Let's let's just stop this now before we end up doing another entire podcast. Maybe we'll do this in two weeks. After next week we'll do the twenty fifteen flashback. The week after that, we'll do the NFL NHL comparison. I don't know. We're we're just sorry, folks. We're just making this shit up as we go along. Now I know there's potentially hockey on the horizon, but if you want to listen to us talk about the Blackhawks Oilers every single week for the next two months, you have much higher standards for this show than we do because we know you, the three people that listen to this podcast, don't want us talking about Blackhawks and Oilers for the next two months. There's only so many ways I can say that if the Blackhawks stop. Connor McDavid, or at least slow down McDavid and Dreisaitl, they'll probably win the series, right? Put, put Brandon Saad on Connor McDavid all, all game, all game long. Give me, give me a line with Saad and Kampf on Connor McDavid, and then maybe you throw uh, Taves' line against Dreisaitl because I don't – there's no way they're going to put those two together. They've been apart all season. So, yeah, and then put Taves' line on Dreisaitl, and then you let Patrick Kane's line do whatever he wants against whatever else – Edmonton's going to throw on the ice, and also and I, I, honestly, you might have to you, honestly you might have to go four scoring lines too because Patrick Kane you put Patrick Kane at a different line with probably like Kirby Doc, then like the Brinkat and Strom, and then again Sod and Comfort together, and then Taze gets Kubalik, and then like just random wingers throughout the rest of that. And there you go, and just whatever you do, just don't let Mike Smith beat you. I've had a, I've had one experience of watching Mike Smith beat the Blackhawks in a postseason. I didn't like it very much. I don't want to do it again. I don't. Are they going to play him or are they going to play Miko Koskinen? I feel probably, like, probably Koskinen, but yeah, Smith has has more experience in the playoffs. Well, I, I guess we'll find out. Well, we and, and again, that's nothing. We have two months to discuss. So, and, and that's what deep dive is for, by the way, too. Morning, oh, morning yeah. deep dish. Mm, deep dish sounds good. Should go eat some deep dish. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Musings on Madison here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. Uh, Stay tuned to secondcityhockey.com. We'll uh, have some 2015 flashbacks coming up. We'll have some other stuff coming up. And if news breaks, we'll be sure to write about it. Like I said, next week we'll be heavily on the 2015 flashbacks. And uh, eventually we'll start getting into recapping whatever regular season we had and starting to preview the – hopeful return of hockey coming up in July or August, whenever it comes back to us. Keep an eye out for that. Um, you know, if you want to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, we'd much appreciate that. Subscribe to us, follow us along on social media. You know the drill by now. Uh, but thank you so much for listening to this episode. And uh, once again, for Brandon, for Shepard, I'm Dave. Go Hawks.